From finance and commerce, this is Beyond the Skyline, a podcast about economic development, commercial real estate, and construction in Minnesota. In each episode, you will meet business leaders, builders, entrepreneurs, and big thinkers. I'm David Bolander, editor of Finance and Commerce. Thanks so much for joining me. Beyond the Skyline is sponsored by Ironmark Building Company. Whether it's a new luxury apartment building in the North Loop or expanding the community in the suburbs, Ironmark builds quality projects for discerning clients. Ironmark's foundation is built on a culture of collaboration with clients and projects that stand the test of time. Talk to Ironmark's award-winning team about your next construction project today. Go to ironmarkbuildingco.com. In this episode, Dan Hilton, research manager at HousingLink, talks to FNC reporter Dan Netter. Hilton discusses his job and the roadblocks for creating more affordable housing in Minnesota. Hi, and welcome to Beyond the Skyline. Uh, my name is Dan Netter. I'm a reporter for finance and commerce, uh, and I am here today joined by Dan Hilton, the research manager over at uh, HousingLink. Hi, Dan. Hi, thanks for having me. Dan, uh, I want to start off with a little bit more of a, a generic question for you. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just curious about HousingLink and um, its purpose and origin as, as well as uh, its mission and what it does. Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll tell you about our, our mission exactly is connecting people to affordable rental homes, increasing choice and access for all. Uh, we were formed over two decades ago as the result of a fair housing ruling um, requiring the creation of a centralized location of affordable housing information to increase housing choice for low-income households. Uh, Over time, we've grown to be a kind of one-stop shop of housing information. We get around 30 to 40,000 visitors a month to our website. Um, anyone ranging from renters to case managers to property owners uh, who can list a property in a vacancy listing service we have, they can do that for free. Uh, or just anyone looking to understand aspects of the affordable housing world, you know, how affordable housing programs work, details about fair housing law or the eviction process, whole wide variety of, of topics. And then, and this is where I come in, we're engaged in research on uh, the rental housing market trends and supply. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your role then. Um, can, can you tell me about, you know, how you go about conducting your research? Yeah, uh, sure. So um, we manage a couple of proprietary data sets and they represent a couple of aspects of the affordable housing world. I like to think of the affordable housing world as being comprised of a couple elements, private market and subsidized housing. And my apologies if this is a little basic to some of the people listening in, but I'll, I'll just go through briefly. Private market rental means private ownership with no public investment. So Rents are pretty much constrained only by market forces. And subsidized housing, at least the way we define it, 
uh, and for purposes of our data, is whenever there's a contractual obligation to provide a level of affordability over a long term. So this could be stuff like public housing or project-based Section 8, where there's a deep subsidy where an extremely low-income household is paying only a portion of their income on rent. Or it could also mean something like tax credit housing or the type of affordable housing you might see in an inclusionary zoning policy where there's not a direct subsidy to a rental family, but rents are constrained to remain at a certain level of affordability, say 60% very median income. Uh, but whether you're talking about deep subsidy or merely limits to the rent that can be charged, all of this, what we call subsidized housing, is being tracked in a database we have uh, called Streams. Uh, for anyone taking notes, it's housinglink.org backslash streams. And Streams is updated on an annual basis with inputs from the National Housing Preservation Database, which is their source of federal programs. Uh, Minnesota Housing, the state's housing finance agency, gives us state um, state investments. And then the Met Council's annual housing production survey gets us uh, contributions from local like communities, local cities. And our current version of Streams uh, with financing through the end of 2022 contains over 3,900 properties and 137,000 units of affordable housing throughout the state of Minnesota. The database is free to use. You can select different criteria like funding source, ex affordability, affordability expiration, and zoom in on a map and export results. And the data is pretty wonky, but it's really useful for policymakers and planners you know, there's market analysts that consult the database, neighborhood groups. You can get a pretty hyper local of detail and characteristics about different properties and where they're located. So that's streams, and that's that's what we do for subsidized housing. And if if it's all right, if I continue private, we do a private market data. Um, we we have a flag uh, another flagship data set called our rental review. Uh, for over a decade, we produced a data set of about twelve to 15,000 rental vacancies in the Twin Cities each quarter. And the individual data points include detail on location and advertised rent by number of bedrooms and building type. So like that's multifamily apartments versus what we call the shadow market of single family duplex condo and townhome rentals. Uh, our our data pretty unique in the industry is a lot of data out there is either based on surveys of occupied units or else mostly draws their data from larger multifamily oriented management companies. And that shadow market of like the single family and duplex stuff is often sort of unaccounted for in rental reporting. Um, shadow market in our in our data only represents about 20 to 30% of the listings we see each quarter, but we think it's a really important insight. You know, particularly as we work in the affordable housing space, these sorts of properties are of particular interest to lower income renters. If you say like a single single family or duplex rental might be a little more able to work with a renter's unique, sometimes more challenging circumstances, or might represent a family's only opportunity to move into their child's school district or close to an employer. So it's important like on sort of a human level, but it's also important on the research and policy side. Uh, in some sub-markets, like I, I live in North Minneapolis, and there's just not a lot of large multifamily stock here. 
So where those rents are coming in at for those shadow market properties, they they influence, you know, where rents can be set and what options renters have when they're looking. So and who is yeah. own oh, I was just gonna I'll just fi- finish by saying who's owning single family rental homes and how they're managing them is like a really big topic of concern to a lot of communities right now. So anyway, that streams is there. We put a lot of work into it, but I think our rental review data drives the majority of the public facing reporting that we do. Oh. Yeah. And, and, you know, you, you, you said that, you know, you work with the Met council and with a couple of other government groups that, yeah. um, you know, you, you, you use to provide data or, um, and, and I'm curious, do you have any other partnerships with either developers or, or real estate groups that, you know, you either help provide data for, um, or, do research on behalf of um, anything like that? Sure. Um, yes. So we do um, actually in, in informing our rental review, the private market data, we're getting data from a number. We have partnerships with a number of management companies, um, as well as a couple uh, rental listing feeds that um, uh, and also uh like renters warehouse to get that some of that view into the the shadow market um but we also uh in terms of partnership and working with different organizations we we work with a lot of nonprofit partners on joint research projects we have a minnesota housing measures um that we do with support of uh the mcknight foundation we're releasing a report called Housing Counts in the next couple of weeks that we do in partnership with the Family Housing Fund. And I think we're, you know, we're a pretty small organization, but I think because our our data kind of represents a pretty important insight into the community, we we find ourselves at the table often with a lot of um larger sort of think tanky groups from, you know, the Federal Reserve to Met Council to maybe the Center for Urban and Regional Affairs and our data shows up in a lot of the work they do. And so they tend to be tend to be pretty willing to partner with us. And that's really helpful. We do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, since, you know, you guys do provide this service, I'm, I'm curious if you could let us in on, you know, possibly any notable trends you think of. Of recent. Uh, in, you know, affordable housing, uh, be it, you know, in supply amount or uh, anything else you think worth of note? Yeah, sure. So I, I, I am going to mention some some promising trends, but I'm going to um, preface anything I do say about that with a note that there's just a persistent need for more affordable housing. Um, there's a typical measure in affordable housing that says that housing shouldn't cost more than 30% of a household's income and any amount over that the household is considered cost burdened. You may have heard that before. It's out there quite a bit. Um, And obviously every family's circumstance is different. You know, there's different needs with respect to transportation or healthcare or childcare or so on. So it's a broad brush, but it's meaningful and it's measurable. And Wilder Compass, which is a a regional uh, dashboard of different community indicators, uh, says that in 2022, over half of all renter households in the Twin Cities were cost burdened. And that's as compared to only 20% of home ownership households being cost burdened. So again, anything we might say about successes 
in housing production or meeting goals or whatnot. There's a lot of great work being done, but it, it kind of has that backdrop of this persistent need and persistent shortage of affordable housing. Um, and the other thing I'd like to mention, this will go maybe a little, a little in the weeds, but um, I think there's sort of a conceptual and data mismatch when we're trying to quantify affordable housing supply. Um, the majority of new affordable housing development taking place, certainly in terms of federal funding, comes by way of LIHTC or what's commonly referred to as tax credit housing. And there's a couple of different ways that the affordability could be structured, but most often it ends up capping rents at affordable to 60% of area median income. Well, according to HUD, the household income of a family making 60% of the area median is $74,520 a year. And while an income of that amount doesn't go as far as it used to, it is almost two and a half times the federal poverty level. And so programs targeting this level of income are not really reaching the very large numbers of families that are extremely low in income. Um, and so we even housing like runs into this limitation ourselves because 60% AMI encompasses almost all housing programs for rental housing are targeted 60% or below. And so that becomes sort of a, a de facto definition of affordable. But if a median income goes up dramatically as it did in recent years, you know, it's, it's real numbers. It's based on surveys, but it can give a really misleading impression as of what this means to truly low-income families. You know, if you say like last year, 50% of vacancies were affordable, to 60% AMI, and this year it's 60% are affordable. That doesn't mean anything to a household of four that's making $40,000 and didn't get a raise. Um, you know, we, we currently produce a monthly report for each of Minneapolis and St. Paul uh, called our rental housing briefs. And in that report, we show year over year change for other levels of income. So like Percentage of all vacancies in the open market that are affordable to 30% AMI, 50%, 60, 80, and 100%. And there you see that almost all vacancies that come online are affordable for families making 100% of AMI. And there's essentially nothing available in the private market for families making 30%. Um, you know, it's a question of priorities from funders. It takes a, a lot of effort and partnership and, you know, community buy-in even to get tax credit developments built, you can imagine how much more expensive and difficult it is to fund projects targeting lower income families. It just takes necessarily a significant public investment to make those sorts of financials work. So all that said, <laughs> under the specter of a persistent shortage of affordable housing, and it's really hard to target lower income families, uh, there's actually been a lot of development in recent years just throughout the apartment industry. Um, throughout that crazy post-COVID inflationary period, you would hear alarming tales of rents rising nationally, but we really weren't seeing that locally. We actually saw things plateau in rent amounts in late 2019 and remain pretty flat until maybe the last couple of quarters. I think we're starting to see an uptick again. Uh, we'd need to see that bear it out over a little longer period, but for the most part, the rents have been surprisingly stable. And I think one of the main drivers of that stability just had to do with new units coming online in Minneapolis and in St. Um, Paul. In, in particular, the years following the Great 
recession, Minneapolis was permitting a number of new rental housing units that were equal to about four to five percent of its total inventory each year. Um, and you know, with that kind of production happening, it just can't help loosen things up a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, St. Paul didn't see quite the same influx, but there's some still some pretty aggressive permitting at that time. And so, and I think affordable housing then was just part of that larger trend of development. Um, we have this report coming out in a week or two called housing. I mentioned it earlier, housing counts with family housing fund. And we basically found that in the last three years, affordable housing production has been greater in each of those years than in any year prior back to when we first started collecting the data in 2024. So in spite of these challenges, developers and communities working on this are seeing some great success. Yeah. And, you know, I, I guess you saying that um, makes me think of, you know, I, I know recently uh, a gate uh, housing and services, they recently opened the Metro in. And, um, you know, I know that there's a couple of projects that Aon is working on. Um, are there any other developments you, you know, are think worth noting, um, like affordable housing developments, that is? Um, I, I think that there just is a, I, I, I would just speak more. I, I, I probably am not going to be able to pull um, specific names off the top mm. of my head, but um, there has just been a lot in sort of that, you know, that downtowns and sort of those those um, hot sub markets of Minneapolis and St. Paul have just remained really active with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I think a lot of the the development, as I said, it's it has been like tax credit housing, but I would mention that there's uh, another thing that's been happening in sort of like housing preservation side that I think is worth mentioning, which is the uh, state's low income rental classification or 4D program. Um, It's this thing that's written into the state tax code. Um, It's a traditionally it's been layered on top of existing affordable housing programs to give like an extra incentive, but you basically get taxed at a lower rate if you are providing affordable housing. Uh, but Minneapolis and St. Paul started doing this thing in the late 2010s, which was um, offering 4D as more of a standalone program where there's no outside financing or program. You basically opt in and saying that you'll keep units affordable to 50 or 60 percent area median income for a period of years. And then those units thereby qualify for that that tax rate. And it actually accounted for the the majority of all rental preservation in Minneapolis and St. Paul in the last few years. So it's really big. And we're starting to see some other communities in the region, Golden Valley, Edina, St. Louis Park and Rochester start up their own 4D efforts. I think they're having a little more trouble getting traction outside of the core cities, but I kind of wonder if that's sort of a affordable housing as a loaded term. But kind of what I was saying earlier about like what 60% AMI really is it's it's not that low and it's it's really about median rent actually for the majority of the twin cities you know with the exception of a few you know really pricey submarkets so if there's property owners listening if you're in one of those communities where they do the 4D you can get a tax break by offering units more or less 
at the median rent in your area, you know, there's there's always going to be some risk that market forces could push it that out of alignment. But it's worth noting that 60% AMI goes up pretty much every year because incomes go up. So, mm-hmm. and you know, I, I, returning to a, a point that you had made earlier about, um, you know, there, there's obviously this this shortage of affordable housing. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm curious if you could tell me at all about, you know, what, what that means for a community to not have this accessible level of housing? Uh, I, I think it really kind of comes down to, uh, you know, how, how we want our communities to be made up in terms of like, you know, where people live. So it's, you know, it's like just a sort of the, the, public will where, um, it, you know, it, you have in, in a lot of communities where it's like, you know, it's really difficult even to get some of those more moderate income affordable housing developments built. And you can only imagine when you're trying to cite something where there's affordable housing for, you know, people that need, you know, supportive services or stuff like that. And it, it just kind of comes down to, you know, if if it's a community that's willing to sort of um, accept those sorts of developments or not, and um, th- there's just so many like roadblocks that can that can exist that that prevent affordable housing being built. You know, you could think of sort of the angry citizens at a, a city council meeting, but there's a lot of quieter, more systemic barriers you know, like single family zoning ordinances or parking requirements or building height limits and, you know, all kind of under the broad umbrella of exclusionary zoning. Um, but, you know, ultimately we live in a region where there's people of a wide range of incomes and and the broader acceptance of affordable housing in a community, I think, comes down to you know, you either believe that we're better off when communities aren't so segregated by income where, you know, poverty isn't concentrated in a few pockets or you don't. And it, you know, that it, it's like the, the public will, but then kind of by extension, the elected representatives or whatever, but it's that that's what kind of like ultimately is in addition to cost or kind of the, like the primary drivers of what, what is going to allow or prevent affordable housing from being built yeah and um i i I, you were i think you know i'm I'm about to ask a question that might be you know kind of answered by your answer just now but um i i am curious about what you know prevents affordable housing developments from moving at a faster pace you know it's it's you know, I, I've talked to multiple people who say, you know, oh, you know, we need to build more affordable housing and build it fast. But what is keeping these developments from moving fast? Sure. So I'll preface by saying anything I say here, I'm sort of an arm's length researcher and I'm not directly involved in the financing or development. So if someone was here that was like a planner or worked for a developer, I would defer to them. But uh, based on my 50,000 foot view, um, I, I think it has to do with that 
you know, I talked about like those so exclusionary zoning policies, but I think the number of sort of zoning ordinance, whatever regulatory hurdles and things that have to be met um, is one big piece. And then, you know, with cost, it's just, it's not that easy to make financials work on um, below market rent uh, properties. And so it's a matter of getting all the interested parties all lined up. And, you know, there's multiple rounds of financing that have to close and multiple partners coming together. And you hear the stories about, you know, by the time you get through a certain portion of the process that it, it's suddenly quoted prices are no longer even, even relevant. And, you know, the, cost i i saw there's this gordian a construction cost tracking firm that said the cost of construction materials are up an average of 19 percent since the year 2020 so I, I think you know things are slowing down a little bit on the inflation front but that's you know that costs are changing like as that process moves along and so i think those are all things that can slow down the process or stop a process entirely Mm-hmm. Uh, I, well, thank you uh, for joining us today, Dan. I really appreciate your time. Um, and uh, thank you for listening to Beyond the Skyline. Have a good one. Bye.